From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Jeffrey H. Cohen is a professor at the Department of Anthropology at The Ohio State University. His recent book, Eating Soup Without a Spoon, Anthropological Theory and Method in the Real World, combines first-hand stories of experiences in the field with questions of how to do research. Welcome to Craft, Dr. Cohen. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So what motivated you to try to eat soup without a spoon? The idea, well, eating soup without a spoon comes from um, an experience that uh, my wife and I had while doing field work in southern Mexico in the state of Oaxaca. The, I believe the third day we were in the field, we were woken up early in the morning by a knock on, our, on the door from our patron, a gentleman named Don Mauro, and he had come to our house to collect the two of us to uh, go to a wedding with him. And uh, we walked down into the village, go into a, a compound with probably 300 people where everyone is looking at us. Um, we are sh- led into a, a very large room where people are eating and we're put down at, at the end of a table and given two big bowls of what is called higaditos, which is a kind of um, a soup with eggs and liver and so on, and it really just delicious for the start of a day, um, and a stack of tortillas and no spoons, and okay. learning it, how to eat that soup. All right, so that's a traditional way to eat the soup is without a spoon. Then. The, yeah, the traditional way is to eat the soup with uh, making little cups out of the tortillas. How many tortillas do you have to go through to eat a bowl of soup? As you might imagine, as people who had never done this before, we went through a lot of tortillas and made quite a mess. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when you watch the people that were familiar with doing it, did they get through the whole bowl of soup one tortilla? People who who (laughs) knew how to do this, yes, could get through their soup quite rapidly with one tortilla. Uh, We also learned that you're supposed to take a lot of the soup home. Really? Did they bring containers for this bag there were special con- special uh pots that were okay. were made for the soup so it sounds like it's designed to just be difficult for newcomers you know well, the idea of no. i'm not sure it was designed yeah <laughs> it's like we'll invite people with no spoons yes. see what let's, happens. let's make fun of the gringos I right think. Yeah. why not just uh i mean so it would be a, a big faux pas to pick it up and drink out of the bowl oh absolutely a very big faux pas to okay. drink it out of the so bowl. how did yes. you know that uh as a person maybe new to this that you weren't supposed to just pick it up and drink out of the bowl well nobody else nobody else was doing no one else was doing it right and uh, they made a quite a production of finding spoons really yeah okay and in the meantime while they were out finding spoons and the image that came to us while we were while we were sitting and waiting was um the image you know from a cartoon where someone walks off the off the scene and you see the 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 characters kind of come out the side of a of the frame and it's you know smoke and so on and so forth and 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 the banging and the clanging and so it felt very much like that that someone was off stage trying to find a spoons making a lot of noise shuffling through stuff and then come um the the duena the woman that was the owner of the home we were in comes out um with two spoons busy polishing them you know very mm-hmm. dramatically giving them to us and in the meantime we, we we were already getting lessons in how to fold up our tortillas 
tortillas and, mm-hmm. and, and, and eat our soup. Okay. So this is one example of the kinds of things that you cover in the book. So let's step back a little bit and say, how did you get into anthropology? What led you into this, this situation? Mm-hmm. Maybe what, you know, how you decided in college, hey, this is a thing for me, and then moved into that field? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, um, anthropology was um, really grew out of um, a love that I had for, for traveling and visiting different places and meeting different people. And as I started, uh, I was very excited about archaeology and realized that while the past was um, absolutely fascinating, for me it was the present that was more captivating. Um, and one of the things that I was uh, really very interested in from, very, from the very start was to uh, really look at how um, rural folks were how life in rural parts of the world were changing. And so in, where I was in Mexico was very indigenous. Uh, people were farmers um, growing very small fields, uh, very, very crops in very small fields uh, for themselves. And uh, it was a real opportunity to see how this community had changed and see how people were adapting and the kinds of things they were doing so that the changes weren't in a sense, um, destructive or of, of their culture or of their, their sense of who they were, but was part of a process of really adapting to a, a new kind of world defined by, by new possibilities. Give me an example of what you mean by how they were adapting to this, this new world. What kind mm-hmm. of things did they do to become adaptive? So the adaptations were across the board. Uh, these were people that spoke uh, their own language called Zapotec, uh, yet they mostly communicated in Spanish, uh, particularly with anybody from outside. And so learning Spanish, but also learning a little bit of their language was part of the challenge for, for us in doing the field work. Um, so that was one, po- one, one way you could see the changes. Uh, the educational system had changed. This was a, a community that in, in the 1970s didn't have electricity, didn't have running water, didn't have sewers, didn't have roads, you know, paved roads. Um, And by the time we were there in the 1990s, um, a lot of that stuff had changed. Electricity was available, um, but it wasn't an easy sort of a change. Uh, These were things that that, um, the community really thought long and hard about the leaders debating the what what were the benefits what were the costs and not everything worked out the way people expected that's for sure what didn't work out for them what kinds of things did they did the unexpected problems arose in the adaptation so some of the problems were i guess things that might be expected things like bringing in um electricity for older folks they never quite understood why somebody would want it um, younger people were, would say things like, you know, this will give us a chance to work at night. And I can remember some of the older uh, members of the community who interviewing them and having them say things like, why would we want to stay up at night? Why don't you just go to sleep? <laughs> so that was a change. And then um, while we were there in the 90s, there was a debate going on over bringing in a sewer system and the cost and how to cover this. And now that's been done. But that was another series of changes that really created a great deal of debate between uh, different different parts of the community, leaders and followers and so on. It'd be interesting to know the uh, anti-sewer argument. Um, Is it simply this is the way it's always been done, that kind of thing? Or they didn't – the 
theoretical sanitary yeah some, some of it was this is the way it's always been done why are we doing this some of it was why do we want to spend invest that much uh, of our energy and our capital into something like this um some of it was you know um an, a lack of of a sense of what's the outcome i mean what's what's the goal here and why do we even need this um so you know and if you think about a community that goes from in the early part of the 20th century maybe 600 people to by the end of the 20th century somewhere in the order of between two and three thousand people um that it changes the dynamic and it, ch- it really changes the structure of need as well okay so when you're in an area like this and you go to do an anthropological study, what are the goals that you take with you? You say, I want to look at these people, I want to study them, but you have to go through a lot of sort of hurdles before that, right? You've got mm-hmm. to make sure that you're right. not creating problems for them, that you're not changing how their civilization or the society functions. What? How do you negotiate that? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. how do you get to learn about people without affecting them? Mm-hmm. So part of what what we did in this project was to really... Uh, try to identify and follow how people in this in a small community, small rural community, were adapting to the changes that were going on around them, particularly in the economy. This was a, a time in the 19, early 1990s when the Mexican economy was was in not not the, the best of shape. It had suffered a series of pretty um, major crises. And the value of the peso had dropped dramatically in, in relation to the dollar. And so that was a setting to really explore how was this rural community that was already largely marginal, how were they adapting to these kinds of changes? And uh, what I did was go in with a series of different tools, um, doing a survey of, of households in the community, taking like a sample of, of households and asking people to tell me about a series of different um, uh, different um, areas. We talked about organization of the household, work, migration, um, r- religious practices, ritual celebrations, uh, education, so on and so forth, uh, farming. Um, and those questions then led to defining uh, more interviews, um, broader what we would call ethnographic interviews, where I would ask people to really just talk about their lives and talk about periods in their lives and experiences. And as an outsider coming into that, um, one of the I think probably one of the biggest challenges was simply not kind of stepping into a mess and not offending somebody, not um, you know trying to kind of remain in, in remain very um, appreciative um, and um, no, what's the word for it? I'm blanking. I'm sorry. Okay. I was going to cough anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you go talk, ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So you talk about remaining appreciative and not getting in the way. Um, what happens when you run into a moment where something, and maybe you can describe a moment like this, is so unusual to you that you like eating soup without a spoon or like eating something strange <laughs> or uh, other practices that you have to negotiate to say, you know, I, I understand that um, the practice is to say, you know, not have indoor plumbing and use um, outdoor plumbing or <laughs> outdoor <laughs> facilities right. or something like that. What's the most uh, difficult thing that you've had to, uh, you know, yourself change to accommodate? I would say, uh, I don't know if this is, uh, uh, well, most difficult thing uh, was a lack of water, of running water. 
Uh, we had a, um, a tank basically in our yard that held about 200 gallons of water and it wasn't drinkable. And so our drinking water was stuff that we would buy. It was filtered and we would buy it and that's what we would drink. And then for cooking and cleaning and everything else, we had a tank, about 200 gallons. We'd fill that up about once a month. So it was like camping, but camping for a year. Mm-hmm. And that was a little hard to take. I Where did you say. fill that from? So we would have people haul, we would pay somebody to haul water to our house. Where did they get it? And they would get it from the well. Okay. So there was a well down in the center of the town. And we lived up about, we lived up above the center of the town on a, on a slope and going up into the mountains. And uh, so we would have water hauled up by truck to our house. Now, one of my uh, closest informants, one of the people I spent a lot of time with, a guy named Don Librado, um, I met him in, in part because every day he walked by our house and he would carry, he would get uh, water. He had uh, two cans, two old oil cans that he had converted to carry water. He would go to the well and carry water to his house two or three times a day. And that was his water supply. And so that was something. The, um, the, the other strangest thing was early one morning in, um, in around um, what we would call Halloween and what for them was Dia de los Muertos, uh, my, uh, my patron again came and he said, we need to go get, um, we need to go get some stuff from up in, the, up in the mountains. So we went up, to, we went ab- up above the town into, um, into this area on the mountains that, that's part of the, the village land. And we were harvesting, um, uh, fi- we were getting, collecting firewood and, and some plants and so on. And uh, w- this was probably, I think we started at about 5 a.m. And then we took a break um, a couple hours later uh, to have a little breakfast. And he pulls out a bag of grasshoppers that are in a, ro- a stack of tortillas, a bag of grasshoppers, and a couple of oranges. And he <laughs> looks at me and he says, okay, here's what we're going to eat. We're going to have some chapulín, which is what uh, everyone calls the, uh, the grasshoppers. They're toasted on a, on a comal. Um, and uh, they're very tasty. But that took me aback. And so he gives me my tortilla and he fills it up with chapulín with the grasshoppers, rolls it up. And he says, okay, you know, let's go. Let's, mm-hmm. let's have some breakfast. And that was, that was one of those moments in field work where you think, all right, I'm just going to do this. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, it ended up, now I love them. They're very tasty. <laughs> what do they taste like? I mean, what they, can you compare them to? They taste just like chicken. <laughs> really? Okay. No, they taste like, uh, they don't taste like much of anything. They taste, they're, when they're, they're cooked, they're, um, they're just uh, toasted and they're, they're um, toasted with a little bit of um, lemon juice and maybe a little bit of garlic that's, that's, that's in there. And they don't really taste like a whole lot. Uh, they mostly I mean, they don't have a lot of flavor. They don't have unique? a whole lot of okay. flavor, and they're they're kind of bit. They can be bitter. They they sometimes taste like what they're eating. So and <laughs> <laughs> that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Well, they're eating um, grass. They're eating right? yeah. So most Plant. of them are coming from either alfalfa fields or or maize uh, cornfields, and the alfalfa the the chapulín that come from the alfalfa tend to be younger. And they're sweeter because the alfalfa is sweeter, and the the maize tends to be more bitter, and the 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 uh, chapulín are a little older, a little more a little more grown, and I guess they're just tougher, you know. Mm-hmm. So they're chewier. Um, so that that quality that has something that that lends something to the quality. But you can imagine growing up in you know North America in a place like like Columbus. I grew up in Indianapolis. Um, you're not trained to eat bugs and here you're you know the you're out there you're working there's not going to be anything else to eat unless you eat this and um 
So that was an opportunity. How do they harvest them? Uh, it seems like it would take a lot of grasshoppers, unless they're larger than what I'm thinking. No, uh, they're they're like exactly what you're thinking. I'm okay. sure. Yeah, so, just uh, look like grasshoppers. How do you get that enough? Yeah, that's for the so the the mostly it's women that do the production of of the grasshoppers and they're called chapulineras, which is just they're they're the people that make the chapulin, and they will go out early mornings into the fields with butterfly nets, and they'll use the butterfly nets to catch them to catch them, um, and you want to do it early in the morning because that's they're not as active because it's cooler. Um, if it's in the middle of the day, they'll jump away because they're, they're much more active. So you catch them in the morning, you put them into a box, you let them kind of rest, they clean themselves and um, come a little, you know, and, and you can also build up. But a field, uh, you know, a, a, a field of, of, of alfalfa or maize can produce an amazing amount of, of grasshoppers, like, you know, kilos. It's interesting. I mean, you think about... Um, the production of food and how difficult it can be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, here's a, a food source that apparently is renewable almost endlessly, mm -hmm. um, rapidly renewable because if they're doing this every day, every day. um, have you looked into the, uh, the nutritional, um, mm -hmm. basis of them? I think if I remember correctly, that grasshoppers are actually high in protein, right? So these are very high in protein. Um, they're, they have, uh, protein they they have a good number of amino acids, um, they have, uh, they're not, they're, I mean, they're, they're pretty good food. They're, they're a pretty good resource. They're, they're very low in, in, uh, calories. And, uh, so they can be a, a, a healthy alternative. The problem is you've got to eat a lot of them. <laughs> you can't have them, uh, you know, ground into something to make a, you could, a paste. You or, could actually, you could something. grind, you, you could grind them into just about anything. I've had them in all different kinds of ways. I've had, um, one of the tastiest was crema de, de chapulín, and it was uh, the grasshoppers um, blended with um, some queso fresco, like fresh cheese, um, uh, like a cream, kind of a cream cheese. Um, that, uh, and then some spice, and poured over, um, poured over meat. That's mm -hmm. amazingly good. So protein so, on protein. Yeah, protein. So yeah, you go yeah. with a high, so high protein. You, you, could, you could have a high protein. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you can eat them plain. I mean, the, 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 the way most people eat them is in just you roll them up into a tortilla. You might put some salsa on them. But that's what you do, and, and, and you eat them. And you do want to be – it may sound absolutely horrible. You have to be careful of the legs. The legs are what scratch your throat, not the... <laughs> <laughs> so you just, like, um, you remove them or you, can, you just chew them you more should, carefully? Mostly they to when you're toasting them, they're going to fall off. <laughs> but if they're on there, if you're eating them, like you're picking them up and eating them by hand, what you'll do is you'll pick them up and hold on to the legs as you, as you eat them okay. so that you can throw the legs well, out. But when you put it into a tortilla... In a tortilla, they usually don't have the legs anymore. Okay. But if they do, you'll, you'll take them off. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is uh, fascinating, uh, you know, finding about, about other people's dietary habits. It makes my kids' objection to some of the things I make a much less reasonable because right. I have... You, you can know, just give them grasshoppers I, and I they'll could, probably eat anything. I may do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about when you're... So you've got this sort of experience. You go out in the field. When you come back to write it up, um, I think usually what you're doing is ethnography. Right. So define ethnography for me, and then let's get, have some examples. So ethnography is really the story of the group. Okay. And in my case, so this was the story of this community. 
and a focused, but, f- but a focused story. So it was focused on how they were adapting to their involvement in a uh, changing market system. Um, and, the, the, and, and that's become, for me, a, a really a study of migration because that became like a, a, a really important piece of, the, of, of understanding what was going on in that community. But with the growth of the community from, you said, I think 300 to mm-hmm. 2,000, mm-hmm. uh, they're not migrating out a lot. Uh, where, right. What's so kind of migration? The, the migration is a pretty uh, recent event starting really in the 1980s with, uh, again, it, and it was in relation to a couple of, 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 of issues. One was the collapse of, of uh, the peso. Another was a real shift in um, the environment. The, the, the region has been in kind of a drought phase for probably almost 30 years now. So that was also uh, exerting some pressure. Uh, a demand for uh, higher wage jobs that just weren't present in the community. For some people, it was um, a demand for education. Uh, and so what you see in the really up to about 19, the early 1980s is movement of people in and out of the community. Some coming to the United States, some going to Mexico City, some going to, say, Baja California, doing different sorts of things. If they were going to Mexico City, it was to pretty much work in construction. In Baja California, it was agricultural work. Coming into the United States, uh, it had originally been uh, work in agriculture, but by the 1980s, it was it was service, work in service labor. Um, and then in the 1980s, you see it just absolutely skyrocket. And it suddenly becomes a really important way to um, earn the money that you want to cover for the the um, the lack of opportunity in in the community um, and so on. Okay. What you uh, describe um, some of these, I, th- I think, in the book, but what's the impact on the community uh, with all, all of that migration? That's the central thing that you're studying, right? right. So, in fact, the, one of the motivations for uh, the work that, I, that I've done is that very question. What are the outcomes for the community in terms of uh, migration? You have people leaving. Um, you have people sending money home at called remittances. So how is that influencing uh, or changing or not, you know, life in, in, these, in this small community, in the rural communities in, in Oaxaca. And what I've been able to uh, develop is a model called a culture of migration model, where migration becomes one of a series of strategies that, that families and individuals will have to, to in a sense, meet their, their needs, right? So they'll have you know, we need to put food on the table. We need to educate our kids. We want to buy a television. We want to, you know, we want to ex- build our house uh, with a real with a kitchen that isn't just a fireplace. So all of these things are things that people are are in a sense balancing and trying to decide how am I going to meet those goals. Um, there are some people that talk about migration as a as a as a kind of um, of rite of passage it's something that young men want will do because they've come of a certain age and we didn't see very much of that what we did see were people negotiating with themselves with their families with with other people in the community in terms of what they wanted what they needed how they were going to meet those needs um, and at the same time the community itself was in a sense experiencing a little bit of a renaissance 
from some of the money that migrants were sending home. They were able to refurbish part of the village's church, for example, in, in one of the towns that we were in. In another community, the, the fiestas, that is the celebrations for saints' days, that had been declining for many, genera- for, for many decades, uh, were actually... Uh, becoming a site for investment. Families in the, living in the United States would send money to support these, these festivals and, and celebrations. So it was a really interesting dynamic. I wouldn't say that it was profoundly, it wasn't, it wasn't something you could say this is negative, this is positive. There were advantages and disadvantages, part, partially in terms of where, you know, where somebody was sitting in relationship to these changes. Um, but they were playing out in lots of really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. When you talked to the different people, um, what kind of different responses did you get, and could you categorize them according to sort of age? Maybe did the older people say, this is more negative, as I might mm-hmm. expect, and the young people were saying, well, this is the new world, you have to keep up with it, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff? Or- so, so, yeah, the changes that we saw in the, in the way people would talk about migration, I think the most interesting was the difference between those uh, villagers um, who had migrated to the United States as braceros. And so these were people that had, were older, that had experience working in the United States that dated before, I think the program ends in 1964. And then if you compare their experiences with the experiences of people who, who migrate in the 1980s and 1990s, you get a very different sort of uh, experience. What was the Braceros program? So the Bracero program was a program, it was called the Emergency Farm Act. I mean, that's not the right title. But it was to bring um, laborers, uh, manual labor, into the United States from Mexico to cover the the decline that went as uh, men went to war and uh, went to World War II. Uh, so it was the, how do you get the labor in that you need? And so there were a series of, of um, these acts that were uh, passed by the government that brought workers in. And they would come in on contract to do specific kinds of jobs, short-term contracts typically, I think, of about no more than three months. Uh, the money that they would earn was held for them. There was actually some of it that was put aside as savings. Um, there are a lot. There was a, an incredible amount of misuse of this stuff. A lot of that money disappeared. There are a series of lawsuits now that are still working their way through court over that money. Um, but the experiences of the people that participated in that program were very different than, say, the experiences of somebody migrating in maybe the mid to late 1990s who doesn't have um, any of those um, th- th- that is, is maybe moving without any kind of papers okay. or, or crossing the border. Can you sum up uh, really quickly the difference between that? I mean, it sounds like it's going to be much harder to migrate, like yeah. you said, without the paperwork. Is there another aspect to it? Are there societal pressures that are worse now than there were before yes, because of the absolutely, negative? Absolutely. And, you know, in the 19th, so when I'm writing about this stuff and in, in, in this book, it's talking about mostly migration in the early 1990s. And that was a point at which people were crossing into the United States um, without a whole lot of harassment. Now it's, it's changed. In fact, talking to, talking to um, people in these villages since, um, since that time, kind of post 9-11, you see a, a real heightened sense of, of, um, of, of uh, it's become much more problematic since, since that, that point. And, and the problems rev- revolve around um, anti-immigrant 
uh, rhetoric here in the United States, um, a sense that that's, that's really unproven, a sense that these are people that are coming in um, to take jobs or are criminals or are dangerous. And in general, I mean, it's, it's as far from that as you can possibly imagine. I can give you the example of in uh, one of the, the people that, that I work with, a student that, that was a Mexican student who, who worked with us on this project, um, had in the 1980s been a migrant in the United States without paperwork. He worked in the basement of, uh, in the mail room at the, uh, at um, a migration enforcement in San Diego, California. <laughs> Not ironic. <laughs> it was a little ironic, yeah. just a little ironic. And now, you know, the last time um, that young man crossed into the United States, he had to pay somebody a lot of money to get smuggled. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's become that, I mean, that's part of the problem here is it's become for the, for the, the people moving, it's become a much more dangerous and a much more expensive sort of situation. When, mm -hmm. you know, in 1992, uh, one of the guys I worked with, I took him to the bus station and he called me from Tijuana uh, about four days later. And he said, you know, my brother's coming to get me. And I was like, so how does that work? And he said, well, he'll drive down here in his car. He's got a green card. We'll drive back to his house and, you know, I'll, I'll pick up the job that I've got. And, um, you know, again, that young man, it, his experiences now are fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. so. Okay. What does this mean for the future of the kind of work that you've been doing? Um, I don't imagine that it's going to become more difficult for you to go there, but everything's changing so much for you. It, 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 it's, it's at once a fertile field, but also maybe a little psychically, psychologically draining to it see. Can, yeah. Yeah. It absolutely can be draining. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's also always interesting. I mean, there's always another story to collect and there's always another experience to hear about. And it has changed. The, the whole structure of migration has changed. One of the things that we know from a kind of a statistical perspective is that migration from Mexico into the United States has dropped to being statistically almost insignificant at this point. And right. that is crossing into the border, uh, particularly without documentation. It's just, it's gone from, you know, it's, the numbers have just dropped and dropped. Does and dropped. Donald Trump know this? I, I would hope so. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's that wall. I don't know. Okay. I mean, because that, I mean, if that sort of information seems to be um, not at the forefront of the sort of immigration discussion that's happening in the U.S. Right. The, the discussion about immigration from the perspective of control and, and safety, I think, is fundamentally disconnected from the discussion of migration as an area of study. I don't think okay. that they go together at all. Okay. And I, but I, yeah. something like that the, that you mentioned, that the migration has slowed so greatly, yeah. seems like that does have a huge impact on that discussion, and, doesn't and it? And that, yeah, I think it does have a huge impact, but that I think is also a, um, a demographic shift. It's, it's people getting older and not really wanting to move as much. It's the fact that if we look at the spike that, that happened in the 1980s and 1990s, um, generally, I would argue that a lot of the people that wanted to migrate, migrated. And now that number is dropping in, in part because there's just not that many more people that are going to continue. It's, it's a finite kind of, of, of body. And not, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but at some level, there was a point in time 
particularly before the year 2000, where you might almost have asked, why is anybody left in Mexico? Or is anybody left in Mexico? And of course, no, the majority of Mexicans have never migrated. They stay in Mexico. Uh, and that tells you that, I mean, that's important to know as, as we're trying to understand the, the movement of people here into the United States. Okay. Well, the book, again, is Eating Soup Without a Spoon by uh, Professor Jeffrey H. Cohen from Ohio State University. I thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. <laughs>